I have only learned one thing in 20 years of marriage, and it's this. Happy wife, happy life. <laughs> if you're married, you already know that. My dad tried to tell me the same thing in his own way on my wedding day. He came to me, and he said, son, I have only one piece of marital advice for you. Before you argue with your new wife, and believe me, you're going to argue with her. Before you do, I want you to stop and ask yourself two questions. Do you want to be right, or do you want to be happy? <laughs> and then he broke down and sobbed right in front of me. We understand that going through loss, setbacks, and personal challenges is not a one-size-fits-all. They come in a million different forms, and all of them hurt. And we want you to know that whatever your situation, there's hope and you're not alone. That's right. You will get through this. Please believe that you can experience happiness and true joy once again. Welcome to Living a Joy-Filled Life. Brought to you by SurvivalLifeThrive.org. Today's episode is Back from the Brink with Jeff Allen, and it includes his struggles with drugs and alcohol as a young man in the headliner comedy scene. It's really compelling stuff, don't you think, Melin? I totally agree. I love Jeff's story. Jeff has been through a very difficult life of addiction. However, uh, the man he is today is sober and happy. Yeah, I mean, that's that's so true, and it's evident whenever you're around him. And, you know, as a Christian, Jeff's actually a so-called clean comedian, which some people say, oh, that must mean not funny. But believe me, he's a funny guy. He is hysterical. I also love how he weaves his faith into his personal journey. Jeff has a strong heart and love for the Lord. He's 33 years sober. And what I love the most about him is he is intentionally happy and living a joy-filled life. And you know, his comedy reflects real life right? That's why it connects with all of us. In fact, he coined the phrase, happy wife, happy life. I think all of us know that one. We do. And honey, as your wife, please remember that. <laughs> so listen, folks, if you're listening, if you're struggling with life challenges associated with alcohol or other addictions, we hope that you can gain strength and courage from Jeff's story, as well as being entertained. Thanks for being with us and God bless you. I'm your host, Mark Negley, and today I have a very special guest, Jeff Allen, will join us. Jeff, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for um, having me. <laughs> so for those of you who that may not know... like one of those funeral things. <laughs> thanks for having me. So, to, have you ever met a happy funeral director? I mean, just, I mean, off, out of, not working. I mean, obviously you can't walk in and the guy's like doing cartwheels across the... The, you know, during the funeral, but I mean, met them on a golf course, or I, I think they're inherently somber. Is, I think is is the idea, and it's funny. I had a guy, a friend of mine. Again, I know we're off topic, but I, I a guy, a friend of mine, was a uh, he he had a funeral business, and I said, was it a family business? Because I, I didn't know how you uh, who, who grows up. He said, no. Oddly enough, when I was a kid, I used to play funeral parlor with my friends and stuff. And that really, oh, and that spoke to me from a point of view that God does give inside of us purpose and, and paths to take 
early in our life if we just pay attention. But I just, yeah, he said I was really a morbid kid. I would just have my friends lay on the couch and I would play funeral director. So when I got old enough, I went to college and, I, and anyway, now he has a chain of funeral parlors. And I thought, oh, I always thought it was just a family thing handed down. All right. Well, someone had to initiate. Well, that's it. I mean, you know, but but God puts it in our hearts and, you know, that's, so anyway, it has nothing to do with what we were going to talk about. Well, what, what you might be able to tell here as we get started is Jeff is a professional comedian and a very accomplished Christian comedian and uh, really happy to have you here. So Jeff, tell me a little bit about your career right now. How's that going? Oh, we're getting back to work, you know, uh, the COVID hit, uh, and uh, it was interesting. Uh, I had had a couple of videos go viral um, a year earlier, and um, it was just at the, like kind of a peak of a 40-year career. It was like a resurgence, and uh, I was just busy, 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 and then all of a sudden, you know, shockingly, nobody's meeting to see comedy anymore. Right. So it was uh, five months at home. Uh, and uh, my wife told me after 30 days, this is the first time in our entire marriage you've been home 30 consecutive days. <laughs> and I said, really? And she said, yeah. I said, I don't believe you. She goes, I've been waiting to say that. I go, I, okay. So at day 34, I think she said, when are you leaving? I mean, she goes, this is, I can't take it anymore. But uh, it's uh, picking back up. And um, I've, I've been very blessed to be able to you know, at least keep my head above water where a number of my peers um, have Basically, a lot of them have retired. We're at that age now. I'm almost 65. So to put this in perspective, before the pandemic hit and changed so many lives, how many shows were you doing a year? Well, I was on track. Uh, it, the previous year, I, I was actually turning work down mm -hmm. uh, by the end of the year. And then by March, I was as busy as I wanted to be or, or could be. You know, it, it was interesting. My wife and I were having conversations about it. Because prior, when our marriage started to fall apart, I was gone. I remember I was getting audited by the IRS. And mm. he says, how many days a year are you on the road? I go, I don't know. It's on the paper. And I looked down, it was 228 days. Wow. I was on the road. And it wasn't all shows. It was like five days at a club, seven days at a club. And uh, I said, no wonder she's leaving me. So it's it's rare or weird that God would use the IRS to, to give me the epiphany I needed to go back home and <laughs> and, and, and fix things. But it was, uh, yeah, it, it really hit me. God, no wonder she's leaving. My gosh. So obviously people can look you up, YouTube or, or oh, Google, yeah. uh, Jeff Allen Comedian. JeffAllenComedy.com. Yeah. JeffAllenComedy.com. What, what sort of, uh, what are your favorite clubs and memories that uh, that you want to share? Well, obviously, first starting out, you know, I was 22 years old, and um, uh, I got lucky. I started in 1978, and by 1980, the country exploded with clubs. There were more clubs than comedians, really. And by then, I had a couple of years. I, I was able to travel the country and be bad at something and make a few bucks, you know, while you learn some craft. Uh, You're originally but, from the Chicago area? Yeah, Chicago. And... Uh, you know, we've lived everywhere. I mean, in Jersey, I lived in Boston. You know, um, I just followed the comedy scene where, where it was, you know, popular. But, um, you know, New York, first time in there, just, you know, I had heard about those clubs and, and heard the names that came out of those clubs and the thing. But I'll tell you, the best best show I had, uh, uh, the most um, moved I was, was when I did the Ryman Auditorium here first time. Here uh, in Nashville. Nashville. We had just um, uh, 
given our life. We'd just given our life to Christ, our, our marriage. We were just kind of coming off of, which we'll talk about maybe a little more, but uh, uh, we had divorce papers filled out and we, she decided not to divorce me and we decided to put everything together and God was really beginning to heal us. And we moved to Nashville just kind of for a new fresh start. And I was, you know, just, we had filed bankruptcy. We had, you know, all this stuff uh, that had gone on. And um, I walked into the Ryman to see a friend of mine uh, who managed some big artists. And one of his artists was hosting a show at the Ryman. And he says, do you want to go up and do 10 minutes? And I thought, are you kidding me? The Ryman? Wow. And uh, looking at the pictures of Elvis and, and uh, all the, the, the big names that had performed at that sure. Ryman Auditorium, to be on that stage um, and uh, walk off, my wife was in tears. Wonderful she, story. Yeah, it was just, uh, yeah, it was, and that was the beginning of, of a new career, really. Uh, some things had happened. There were people there that invited me to perform at the Belmont Mansion for 20 people. It was the Christ Presbyterian Choir. He calls me at home. I got your number from the, my friend. And he said, um, uh, would you mind doing a show? I don't have any money, but uh, it's just to, to say thank you to the choir. I go, sure, I'll do it. I don't care. And there was a guy in there that knew Bill Gaither, the singer. And he says, I think Bill would like you. And then I went to lunch with Bill. And I had never heard of Bill Gaither. I don't know who he is. Came up and told Tammy, I think I just had lunch with the Elton John of gospel music. <laughs> but from there, I ended up touring with Bill for seven years. I mean, it's, 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 it's just interesting that if you're willing to be available for, um, for anything, you know, God will use it, um, it, you know. Well, let's jump into that a little bit. So, um, obviously, it, it's fair to say today... You have a full and joy-filled life. You are oh, happily married to a woman that you love. Yeah, me and the skeptic and cynic that I, I, I'm a recovering cynic and skeptic. <laughs> I keep waiting for the shoe to drop. <laughs> it's, it's so good. It's like, you know, yeah. And, and so we, you know, it, it's so wonderful to take the moments when we're, we're in these circumstances to really Absolutely. recognize that and embrace it. But it wasn't always like that for you, was it? We got married in 86, so in July of 87, um, I had gone out and um, and got drunk and coked up. And, you know, um, it's not a story to tell because I, I ended up uh, just, my, my youngest, my baby was six months old. I had a three-year-old and a six-month-old. Uh, Tammy had a two-year-old when I met her. And uh, we met in November and I'm... Asked her to marry me in April. She got pregnant in May. We got married in July. <laughs> so I don't recommend that for anybody. I just, you know, but, uh, you know, all of a sudden I went from single and traveling 50 weeks a year, really. I was only home a couple weeks a year um, in Chicago to marry the two kids inside a year. And you were actively doing drugs? Oh, alcohol. Drinking. Yeah, I was a, yeah, um, a binge drinker, big. So I'd binge for four or five days on the road, come back home and dry out for two days and then hit the road and binge for four or five and then dry out for two. Was that an important part of your your career, your performance preparation? Not at all. You know, I, I, I think you use it as an excuse. When I first got sober, I go, well, I'll ever be funny again. Well, that's such nonsense. Mm -hmm. You know, gee, the clear eyed, clear thinking. Gee, why would you be funny in a business <laughs> that requires clear thinking? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, instead of standing up there with uh, blood running out of my nose and, and you know, the stuff that happened. and um, 
But uh, my son, my baby started crying and, and he wouldn't stop. And I spanked him hard. And I mean, really was spanking him when Tammy came in and took him away from me. And she sat on the end of the bed and fed our son. And um, I, I really, it hit me through all the booze and coke that um, I could have killed my son. It's um, a very low, long. That was the that was the most shame. I you know again you know anybody listening that's been through alcoholism or or, or you know, in it you know you, you get arrested for DUIs you know that's part of it, and if you're around the right kind of people you're laughing about it two days later you know you're not ashamed of it, you know obviously it's an inconvenience and you know back when I was drinking thirty some years ago, uh, now it's it's jail time and it's you know um, but. Uh, Anyway, uh, bar fights, you know, they didn't bother me, you know. Um, you know, it was just all part of the, you know, the cost of drinking. You know? mm -hmm. But uh, this was, this was frightening. And uh, I told my wife, if you didn't take me to AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, I wouldn't go. And if I didn't go, I don't, I don't know if we're going to make it. So in, in Survival Life Thrive, in our model, we refer to that moment as the point of impact. When your loss becomes so clear to you and your yeah. your loss was really recognizing that uh, you need to make some serious changes in your life because you were lost absolutely you know and and it's and i knew i had a problem i mean you know any alcoholic that tells you they i didn't think i had a problem is, is a liar you know i knew i was not normal and when i was back in high school when i was drinking you know i could blackouts and you know, friends would tell me things that happened, you know, and I, and I pretend to go, oh, yeah, I remember that, you know, and I have no clue, you know. So your, your experience at this point of impact, emotionally, you, you mentioned shame, guilt, I mean. Yeah, and fear, I had fear of quitting. I mean, I, believe me, I was, that thought of, I gotta, I can't drink the rest of my life. Are you kidding me? I can't, you know, and, and believe me, I, I'm in my twenties. I've tried. I mean, I would go months, try, you know, white knuckle my way through months. And at one point I did go to a 12 step program for, for, for a month and a half and realized I wasn't I'm not as sick as those guys, <laughs> you yeah. Know? but yeah, there was fear, um, you know, and, uh, uh, more than anything, just afraid, you know, and, 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 I call it the beast. You know, anybody that has an addiction, is a, it's, it's the beast. And the beast starts chirping. You know, you can't live without me. Sure. You're not going to be funny anymore. You're not going to be, you know. And it's almost as if it has a life of its own inside you. And uh, which is why you cannot do this alone. I, 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 you know, I applaud people who can isolate themselves away from their, their vice. But um, I couldn't. I needed people. I needed to be around so in the and in the context of the emotions you're experiencing at this time, right? Um, I describe it as uh, in the early stages as atomic in nature, meaning there's not a singular emotion that you're going through, but there's all kinds of stuff swirling around and colliding, including fears about your career and about um, your future and what does this mean? I mean, is that kind of well? It was also maturing. You know, they say, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but, you know, I've, I've read this. I've read a lot of books on this. But um, when an alcoholic starts drinking, it's where they pretty much freeze themselves emotionally. So I started at 13 or 14, which explained to me, and it helped me get through the, uh, what was going on inside me. 
I was going through puberty at the age of 31. It's when I got sober. Mm. All of a sudden, I called it my own personal cryogenic program. I froze my my emotional life mm. at 14 <laughs> and, uh, and, and decided to unfreeze it on my wife. I mean, I was a scab. I mean, I'm telling you, I was a walking, talking scab. Mm. And everything in the external picked in, in this pus. It's the only thing I can describe. It came out in the form of anger and rage. I was just a, um, and, and, you know, I don't even talk about it, but horny. I mean, it was like, I <laughs> chasing her around. I mean, it was like I was going through puberty. <laughs> and uh, it was, she goes, what is going on with you? And I go, I don't know. You know, and I, and I started talking to people in the program, which is, again, why you don't do it alone. So you found out you're not a freak. Oh, that's normal. And the sugar eating, my God, I was eating three, four, five candy bars a day, and I never ate candy. Um, but the alcohol turns to glucose in your body. So when you take that out of your body, all of a sudden there's this craving for sugar. And I did most of my drinking between 10 p.m. and 4 in the morning. So all of a sudden I'm eating cereal at, at 11 o'clock at night, you know, Cocoa Puffs and sure. things like that, you know, and, uh, yeah, putting on weight, and, you know. But, uh, but it's again, to, to have the knowledge that this is, it's normal, the craving and what you're going through is normal, uh, helped, even though I felt like a freak, you know, because all this stuff was, you know, and again, you're talking about emotionally. Uh, for me, I didn't know how to deal. I had two, two basic coping skills when I got married. Uh, I drank and I slept. That was basically <laughs> how I coped with life. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I got to deal with all of this responsibility as an adult. And I'm, a, again, a good example. I'm a 14-year-old kid. So imagine putting your 14-year-old in charge of your finances, in charge of your, your, your family, in charge of raising your kids. You know, your, their younger brothers, six-month-old and a one-year-old, a three-year-old. You're emotionally. Well, that's it, you know. Yeah. And I was just a child in an adult's body. Uh, and um, so, again, my only emotion that I had a grasp on was anger. That was comfortable for me. When I was angry, I was comfortable. Sure. So what I found out later was anger is a cover emotion for sadness. Mm. Most people who are rage filled were hurt, wounded as children and covered it, covered the sadness. There comes a point in your childhood where you're sad, 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 sad. And then one day you wake up and clench your fist and go, I'm not going to feel this anymore. I'm tired of it. Interesting. And you cover it with anger. So until you get through all the anger to the sadness, as like an onion, you 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 remain angry, bitter, jaded, cynical, and foul-mouthed, which is what I was for years. But when I finally started dealing with the sadness and just crying a lot over you know whatever I perceived as loss, um, you know, uh, father stuff. And, you know, mom stuff and, you know, um, just sure, even well, baseball. I had to grieve the loss of, you know, my one true love in life was baseball. So and, you're, we'll, we'll circle back on all these things, but let me, let, let me ask to frame this a little bit. So you find yourself going into AA after this, yeah. uh, uh, this epiphany. Um, you're struggling with your personal emotions and guilt and shame and fear for the future and, and all these totally legitimate emotional concerns. What AA calls 
upon a higher power. I mean, right. where where did you? Well, where were you at that point? Nowhere, to nowhere there. I was an atheist. I, I, you know, I, and I was a loudmouth, uneducated atheist. I mean, I couldn't make a, you know, an argument for any worldview. I just. You know, God, like, yeah, right, God. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you walk in and they say pray and you go to what? And they go, we don't care. But just, you know, supplic- basically supplicate yourself. You know, in the morning, get on your knees and pray to whatever you feel like. But How did you reconcile that? With oh, I, I did. I, I wanted to quit drinking. Mm-hmm. So I was like a child. You know, it's funny what the Bible says, you know, Jesus has become like children, which means basically, you know, do what I say. Yeah. So anyway, I just said, all right, I'm, I'm going to do, you know, it's like when I got a manager for my career, you know, and Tammy says, why are you going to do that? I said, I didn't hire him to, to question him. <laughs> you know? I said, I said, I, let's remember where I brought our business. Okay. <laughs> you know, so anyway, and uh, so, uh, um, I, I started to pray, and they gave me a, what they call the third step prayer. Uh, anybody listening that's uh, read the the blue the big book will recognize this. But it was God um, uh, remove me from the bondage of self, so that I may better do Thy will. Take away my difficulties, so that victory over them others may bear witness to Thy strength, Thy power, and Thy way of life. And then I threw the serenity prayer in that God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and wisdom to know the difference. Mm-hmm. Not knowing what I was praying to or who I was praying to. It was just doing what I was told to do. If you don't want to drink, do this. So I did it. And I, I said I rebelled enough in my life, and, and I was mature enough on one end to at least look back at my history and know on my best day I'm, I'm a drunk that beats a six-month-old. Mm-hmm. That's my best day. So I'm going to do what you tell me to do. And I looked around those rooms, which is why it's important to look around the rooms and see years and years and years of people and to hear their stories. I was this guy. My favorite story was a guy in Boston that used to lay on the bench and laugh at people on their way to work, you know, and try to panhandle. And then he heard about a meeting, AA meeting. You can go and if you can take the money out of the basket and nobody says anything. He goes, really? So he went for like months and he would grab the money and he'd look around. Nobody said a thing. So after two or three months of taking it just about every day, mm-hmm. he got to him and he passed it on. He didn't take the money and the whole room stood and applauded. <laughs> <laughs> and, what a powerful story. Well, and on top of that, he said those high rises, there's two of them that my company has built in um, his construction company. And I heard that as a newbie sober. Sure. And you hear, I didn't hear the spiritual side of it. I heard the financial and material side of it, that if I stick around here, I'll be able to maybe make a few bucks and, and do some things. But So I, I, we, I refer to that in the period that you're talking about as the alive stage, which is effectively you're still working through the pain and the hurt in your life and your heart, your, yeah. the, the loss and the mistakes that we've made in our lives continue to be part of the fabric of who we are. Right. But at the same time, we are finding that 
new ways are are working and bringing us are are allowing us to start healing. When did that healing start taking place? Well, wow. You know, there's a saying in the 12-step program that you'll find that God is doing for you what you can't do for yourself. Hmm. And um, for me, I was not a poster boy for the 12-step program. I was, the, I'm the reason it was, a, it's an anonymous program. <laughs> Even talking now about it is probably violating one of their principles. As long as you keep at the it level to yourself. of press. Right. Yeah, I, I lest one speak for the entire group. I am not a spokesman for the group. Um, it took me a long, long time to get comfortable in my own skin. And uh, I'll tell you, at 18 months, I was sober 18 months, and I was ready to drink. I was working a club in New York, Catch a Rising Star. And I was sitting at the bar, and I was ready to start up again. Tammy and I had an argument. So anyway, someone said, a friend of mine who was in the program goes, hey, man, I'm going to a meeting. It was right around the corner. What time's your show? I said, well, not till 9. It was like 7. He goes, great, meeting 7 to 8. You know, so anyway, um, this was really a, a, a turning point for me spiritually okay so i'm in there and i'm white knuckling and all i'm thinking about is getting back to the bar i want to get a drink you know and um they have a speaker it's a speaker's meeting which is like oh crap i gotta listen to you know another story well he gets to some point in the story a very successful guy again a very successful guy now and he said at 18 months and that's when my ears lifted because i'm at 18 months he said the wheels came off in my entire life and my sobriety Wow. He said, I just, I just, for whatever reason, woke up one day and I didn't want to do this anymore. And I was just, it took me, he goes, seven to 14 days of just working this program, just getting into these meetings and stuff. And eventually I busted through that, you know. And um, so but, he'd relapsed right at the same Well, he was close to relapsing. The uh, same thing. He said, I, I wanted to just cash it all in. And of course, that resonated with me. I'm in 18 months. I want to cash it all in. So I was able to grab him on his way out. And I said, so what did you do? He says, get into the program. Just deeper in. Dive into what you're doing. And don't listen to that that voice inside you. That, uh, now, you mentioned, you said that there's almost a spiritual turning point. Well, it was it. Because he talked about God and um, leaning on him. Um and I said, well, the higher power, he goes, no, I mean, you know, God. That's like, I, it's God. Um, not a concept. But not a concept. An entity. And that's really kind of what started me on the journey. Um, it, it was about that moment. Tammy and I had had uh, what I call the big fight, where I stood on a stool in the kitchen and I yelled at her until she fell to her knees and she just started sobbing. In the kitchen. I'm standing on a stool screaming at my wife. My son, I put him in bed that night, and he goes, Daddy, you win. I go, what do you mean I win? He goes, you yell, Mommy cries, you win. Oh, boy. So I went downstairs, you know, and I told Tammy, I said, I'm going to get some help. So I started in therapy. Like a week later, I went to a meeting the next day, and I said, anybody know a therapist? And by the way, I tell people, if, if you go to a therapist, go to one that works for the state. They're not in it for the money. It was like it was like fifteen bucks an hour. <laughs> you know? So she wants to get you well and get you out, you know. So yeah. and she wasn't taking any crap. But she could see right. It was so funny. I wanted to tell my story. I really did. I wanted to tell my story. Have her pat my hand and tell me you need to get let this woman go. You need to get a divorce. And I'm not kidding you. I was 
three minutes into telling her my tale of woe. And she goes, look, I want to, I got to stop you right here. If you came here looking for permission to get a divorce, you came to the wrong therapist. <laughs> so I got a backpedal and go, no, no, that wasn't my plan at all. <laughs> yeah. But I respected her right there for her ability to see that right. in me. I, I mean, again, God puts people in our life. And uh, I, uh, we went to marriage counseling together. Three t- well, we couldn't do it together. We, we made about eight minutes and she threw us. She separated us. We couldn't sit in the same room and and let the other person talk. We had to interrupt, and, and um, we were just we weren't the kind of people you had over for a friendly game of scruples. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, I kept going, and she put books in my hands. And after that particular meeting, when I came back to her, I said, uh, "I need to get into this this God thing." Or and um, anyway, she put Roadless Travel in my hand. Uh, Scott Peck's sure. seminal work. It's an amazing book. And really what I got out of that was, you know, life is difficult when it can be accepted as such and no longer is. It becomes a series of problems you need to solve. You know, so that kind of made sense to me from a logical point of view that, okay, I have I have bad coping skills. I need So, you know, obviously problems are part of life if I learn how to. And then the other thing I got really got out of the book was you can't have love without conflict. It doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and love doesn't, you can't even have a... You can't begin to be truly love until conflict enters the relationship. Mm. So everything that leads up to that first moment of conflict, that euphoric feeling that we all feel and chase, was an illusion put there by God to keep the species going. <laughs> without it, there would, without the art of attraction, without that attraction, there would be no possibility to to have that first fight. You know, so um, that resonated because we conflicted. We didn't conflict well. You know, and again, that was something that I could work on um, logically and reasonably. Um, it wasn't some concept. It was like, okay, uh, when you feel the rage coming up, there's things you can do. You know, leave the room, calm down, take some breath, come back, and um, and maybe have a an adult conversation rather than stomping around like a like a fourteen year old. You know. So was the counselor that that you were seeing was she Christian or was no. she okay? I don't think she was. I it certainly if she was, she wasn't pushing it. Mm-hmm. Um, I ended up going to group therapy, um, which was again eye opening in the sense that it's easy to get wrapped up in your own. You know, they say there's no smaller package than a man wrapped up in himself. So when you get wrapped up in yourself, your 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 mind is is contracted to the smallest possible. Um, um, it, it, there's no expansion when you're wrapped up in yourself. When mm-hmm. you when it's your problems and your life and your thing. So group helped me to to realize that there was a kid in there whose father was a former Marine sergeant that used to stand him and his mother up and berate them two, three hours at a time, pacing oh, back God. and forth. And if he fell out of attention, he got smacked. Yeah. And he didn't have a bed with sheets on it his entire childhood. His father wouldn't put sheets on his bed. Abusive. And the, yeah. And the, and he would bruise him on the body. And uh, he said I, he made the mistake of once of telling somebody at school about it. And you know, he was uh, put in a hospital in another state. His father took him to another state, put him in a hospital. And one of the most funniest, driest, sense of humor of, of, of the group uh, and mm-hmm. 
it was funny. We were talking about unconditional love once. And it does, does it exist? Is there such a thing as unconditional? Can you actually love unconditionally? And uh, somebody said, I think Joanne, that was the therapist's name. I think Joanne loves us unconditionally. And this kid shoots out. Yeah, stop paying her. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's a great that's a great point, though. So yeah. for people who look for counseling, and, and in some cases, they, it's through struggles with substance abuse, anger, right. emotional issues, um, uh, abusive upbringings and, and brokenness through your, yeah. your early life. For others, it's uh, trying to find somebody to talk through their emotions and experiences when someone they love has right. has passed. Um, I mean, therapy is incredibly valuable and important in, as we're repairing our heart and soul, but it's also a, a difficult maze to navigate. Yeah, you got to shop. Tammy and I, even when, you know, 10 years ago, we needed an arbiter. We needed somebody to get between us sure. and, and see it. It took one session. There was just an issue in our marriage, the clean house thing. You know, sure. it was just, we tried. I mean, the boys, probably longer than 10 years because the boys, we would clean up. She would travel and we'd come home. Anyway. So you found an arbiter. Well, we found an arbiter. And I just said, look, we need somebody to mediate between this discussion. And I told my story. She told hers. And again, we've matured. So we were able to finish each other without interrupting. And uh, he just looked at her and said, you think you're getting a little obsessive about or raising the expectations that are unattainable? And Tammy goes, no. Well, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, it could be. You know? yeah. And then she started talking about the way her mother would come home from the road and Break just through. barrel through the house and scream and holler and rant and rave. And the house was never clean enough and all of this and all of that. And um, anyway, it was fine after that. It was just, but sometimes you need a mediator. Sure. Therapy where you're going into that onion and peeling back to get to sadness. That's but right. said an unexamined life is not worth living. I, I knew that I was broken or damaged. I didn't want to be the man I was, so I wanted to be different. And I found myself able to maintain appearances. But when stress hit, um, you know, we play golf. So, you know, when you're working at something on a swing change, it works fine until pressure comes and you revert back to what's comfortable. Sure. And it was the same way in my marriage. Eventually, I would rage out, smash something, break something. And then Tammy would cower. Therapy helped with with just being in books. Um, Bradshaw's books on family dynamics helped me tremendously. Learning where you fit in birth order. That fascinates me even to this day. I love birth order. Mm. You know, um, Where are you on that? Sequence? I'm the baby. I'm the clown. I'm the uh, comedian. I'm the good-natured <laughs> one. You know, and that's, you know, that's how I dealt with the stress of stuff around me. So, you know, what I, here's what I love about your story. Um, you're now not a comedian, you're a Christian comedian. And you mentioned earlier that foul mouth and no boundaries whatsoever in, in your in your early career as you were struggling, yeah. um, as you've described. What happened when that changed? When did that, when did that light go off that inspired you to approach your Well, it was before I was a Christian. Um, Probably two years before. My son, I got we got called to school. My fourth grade son called his teacher on nasty names. And the teacher couldn't repeat them, you know. She just hung her head. So I looked at, looked at the t- 
teacher, I said, I'd love to be able to look you in the eye with a straight face and tell you I have no idea when a child heard that kind of language, but uh, doesn't exonerate them. Good for you. So I said, um, you know, she goes, what do we do? I said, what school policy? She said, suspension. I said, great. Tammy looks at him or she looks at my son who was sitting there. She says, great, I can do some of your work around the yard for the next few days. So, and he goes, but I didn't mean to say it. So I said, all right, so we can all kind of get on the same page here. You have no control what comes out of your mouth, none. So if that was a six foot four, 255 pound linebacker, man, you would have said the same thing. He goes, probably not. And I go, so then you do have control. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so anyway, you can work in the yard for a few days. Anyway, she said, I don't know if that'll be necessary. I said, well, I'll tell you what, we'll back you whatever you want. You want to take him back behind the woodshed here and hit him with lumber? I said, I'm all, I'm all for that, too. So um, anyway, when I, we got home, this is what I really, I, I, I liked what I did. This is something more parents, I think, should do, um, is I made him write out an apology. I said, I want you to write it out, what you're going to say, because you're going to get there, you're going to freeze, you're not going to remember, and you're going to look at your feet and go, I'm sorry. I want you to write it out. That I understand you're somebody's mother, that you're somebody's wife. And uh, uh, I was wrong in, in what I said and everything, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, he comes home that day with it signed by the teacher. And I said, how was it? He goes, awful. And I go, it should be. Right. I said, only what comes out of our mouth, which hurts and cuts. Um, I said, we make mistakes. You made a mistake. That's all it is. doesn't mean you're bad. But you're looking in the mirror when you're right. going through this. Process. Well, that's what I had to do, you know. And I got to the point where I apologized so many times. I walk in my kid's room and he'd go, I know you're sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying, son. Good for you, man. I'm trying so hard. And it just broke my heart because I'd see my children when I raised my voice. Got to where I couldn't even raise my voice watching the Bears play football. And I, said, I told Tammy, I'm going to have a stroke. <laughs> if, I can't, if I can't yell at the Bears. So, <laughs> and, and, I mean, for uh, full disclosure, transparency, I'm originally from Chicago and a oh. Bears fan also. Oh, so, so believe me, I know that feeling. Well, you survived Abe Gibber, <laughs> Jack and Cannon, you know, oh Bobby gosh. Douglas. Oh, yeah, those were yeah. the days. Not yeah. Right. And it's not so much better right now. Frankly. No, and when they dismantled the 85 dynasty they had, I just, that's when I lost. I said, I'm done. Yeah, well, you can take the boys out of Chicago, but you can't take the bears out of the boys. That's the problem. Well, that was my father. He goes down to Dallas to live with my sister, and he's wearing a cowboy coat. And I go, what, do we got to commit you? I mean, what? you really, this is it. You've lost your mind. He goes, well, in Rome. I go, not when in Rome. You're bears. You're a bears. You've, my God. Do you remember? Oh, we, we understand each yeah. other completely. Yeah. No, man. I went to Phoenix. I was a Bears fan. I was in Boston. I was a Bears fan. I wasn't a Patriot fan. That's exactly you the know? way it should yeah. work. So the the uh, the process here in your journey is first, you're realizing that the changes that are going that are taking place in your life are not just uh, emotional growth and maturity. But you're also recognizing that things coming out of your mouth and the way you're modeling and so forth is yeah. to be addressed. Well, I'm seeing it play out in my sons. Right. So at one point, I wanted to raise them in a Buddhist monastery. That was, that was an interesting conversation. I came <laughs> home. I was uh, studying Buddhism at the time. Um, and 
came home and I said, I think, Tam, I'm going to put the boys into a monastery, Buddhist. And she goes, over my dead body. And I said, oh, okay. That's how long it took her to talk to me. <laughs> but I had reasons. I mean, I, uh, when's the last time you read about a Buddhist Tibetan monk at a red light beating somebody up? I mean, I was always getting in screaming jags in my car at red lights and stuff with people yelling across, you know, I'm that guy. Yeah. You know, and yeah. didn't want to be, but I was. Yeah. I mean, that gripping the wheel and, you know, and uh, I almost uh, yanked a steering wheel off a car one day. I was so angry. And um, I yelled at a bank teller for having the nerve to bounce one of my checks because I didn't have any money in the bank, you know, as if she personally, yep. you know. But I, I had a fit, an absolute fit. And uh, I went to a meeting that day and uh, somebody said, well, you got to go back and apologize. I go, no, I'm changing banks because there was no way I'm going to step foot in there again after the scene I made. Right. So anyway, he says, oh, no, you don't. Embarrassing. Yeah, no, you don't. You own it. So anyway, I go back in, and sheepishly, like a child, I'm shuffling across the thing. And the woman that I embarrassed and humiliated uh, was having a conversation with one of her coworkers when I walked in, and smiling and laughing. And then she saw me, and it all went away. Oh, boy. And she kind of bowed up. And I walked over, and I said, I owe you an apology. I said, I was way, way out of line. And um, she said, uh, thank you. you know, and that's kind of the way it was for me. I'd react and then go, ugh. And then that now I've had enough program time to where I got to own that. So then, then it came to a point after so many years that I'd start to react. And I'd go, I don't want to apologize. So I'll bite my tongue. And then seeing it playing out in my children when he says, I didn't mean it. So I could sit there as a father and excuse it and go, well, he didn't mean it. So, you know, just let him go. Or I can give him the tool I had been given. Own it. It's not pleasant. It's not fun. So maybe next time you'll think before you speak. Because it worked on me. How long have you been clean and sober now? 30, 33 years. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, it's, uh, it, again, it's, it's one of those miracles you look at and you go, you know, I, you know, again, you start at day one and go, well, I'm going to, I'm going to quit after 33. I mean, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I'll make 33 years. You know, there's no, oh God, it literally is a 24 hour, sometimes 24 minute, sometimes five minutes. I was at a bar and, uh, Florida once had a beer in front of me and I had talked about it on stage and some guy walks by and he goes that stuff you said on stage true you're an alcoholic I go I am he goes what's that I go suicide wow and he says come on man he took me to a meeting and that's when I started really starting to believe in God no coincidences that there are angels we are his tool we are his instruments and these things so I started paying more of attention to things like that as moments that maybe there is. And those were seeds that were planted early that when eventually I couldn't deny anymore. Well, what was that epiphany? Where did the, where did the higher power, uh, a God-like concept turn into the person of Jesus Christ? Oh, wow. Well, that came, you know, I started with self-help. I went to, you know, New Age a lot of new age uh, and then Buddhism. And then eventually I was reading Ayn Rand and humanism. 
which if I was not a Bible-believing Christian, I would be an objectivist. I really would. I loved Ayn Rand's philosophy. I loved her stuff about personal responsibility and, and uh, capitalism and, and stuff like that. So, But I started going to some churches, like in Atlantic City. I wound up in an all-black church. That was interesting. Um, <laughs> and uh, I never, you know, again, I, I don't know. I'm not a churchgoer, so I don't know what church is. But the pastor kept passing the basket around going, you can do better than that. And he'd pass it around again. <laughs> so I'm, I'm you know, guilty white guy. I'm throwing money in. <laughs> that I didn't have. Yeah, because I didn't want anybody looking at me. You know? <laughs> so anyway, uh, I, again, I was dabbling in that. And then I met a businessman on the road. Again, another seed planner. Uh, he was sold his businesses for I don't know how many million. And I'd heard about him. And as a golfer, you understand this. Uh mm -hmm. I found out that he was a member of Muirfield Village in um, Ohio. Oh, sure. Also Preston Trail in Dallas, which was an amazing course. Mm -hmm. um, and he could get me on Augusta National, and he could get uh, wow. Shinnecock, uh, Pine Valley. He had connections with all of those through a, a, a Shinnecock in New York, an organization Valley, called Golf Links, which I did not know was a Christian ministry. I just yep. heard it was called Golf Links. Mm -hmm. So anyway... Uh, I told my agent at the time, I said, I want to work with this guy. I heard he's out opening MC in comedy clubs for a hundred bucks a week. He's the only MC in my lifetime that pulled up in a 550 SEL Mercedes. <laughs> you know? So he liked so, it. Well, yeah. So anyway, um, we were golfing. This was at a point where Tammy and I, had, we had filled out the divorce papers, had them notarized, and then she changed her mind. from, And, and we were trying to... And what I, I, what I haven't shared, and, and again, I'm not breaking any trust. Uh, Tammy shared this on a video. She was having an affair. I still wasn't a Bible-believing Christian, but I was, again, going to churches, trying to, again, trying to find this God thing. Because I would tell people, you know, look, if I'm making up a deity, that makes me delusional. You know, the whole whatever you want concept of the, how the universe runs is great till you lose a child or mm -hmm. to you to cancer or a loss of a job or loss of a spouse or loss of something really heavy. And you're on your knees looking for comfort in the middle of this tragic storm. And your voice in your head is going, what are you praying to? Right. It's not, I mean, you made it up, you know, and again, it's a nice fuzzy thing to say our prayers are with you or whatever, but prayers to what? You know, so that was my my struggle hmm. was just I does God exist? I mean, really, does God exist? And if so, what does that look like? Or you know, so anyway, so here we are, twenty five years ago. Yeah, and she, I find out she has an affair. I I, I kind of knew something was going on, and I called my AA sponsor, and I said, No, I think Tammy's having an affair. And he says, uh, you don't want to know." And I go, "What do you mean I don't want to know?" He goes, "You trust me, I've been through this. You don't want to know. Just let it run its course." And I go, I can't, I can't do that. He goes, then, well, don't call me in a month or two weeks with your head in your hand because I'm going to tell you I told you so. I said, fine. So all I did was she was in California uh, visiting a friend, and I went on and called American Express. I said, is my card being used? And they said, yeah, it's in a hotel and whatever. So I called the hotel, and, and she picked up the phone. I said, I got you. And big pause. And I said, get your home now. It's bad enough you're doing what you're doing, but I got to pay for it too. Mm. You know? So anyway, Painful. the beauty of the whole thing, she didn't come home that night. 
her friend called me. She said, Tammy's too distraught to get on a plane. I said, oh, really? She's distraught. You know, anyway, I was snotty. Sure. That night, I couldn't sleep. And every time I tried to get self-righteous about what she was doing, that little voice would say, remember the time you stood on the stool in the kitchen? Remember the time? And it were time after time after time. By the end of the night, man, I was, no wonder she did what she did. Hard moment. It was. And I picked her up at the airport the next day, and she sheepishly comes across baggage claim. And I put my arms around her and gave her a kiss and said, we're a mess, an absolute mess. And uh, we can get through this, but we got to make some changes. She says, that's it. I go, babe, I, I, I tried. I tried to get righteous about this. I really, I don't blame you. But if that's what you want, then we got to cut it. We got to file those papers and cut it. I'm not going to share you with somebody else. Right. And um, that went on for two or three months. Um, and she traveled doing dogs. So she, I knew when she was at a dog show, she was with him. And uh, I was in Vegas. I have a picture. I love that picture. I really do. Because it was at the lowest point of our life. And she is just absolutely stunning we're in uh, a restaurant and i had no money we were broke and i took her to i wanted to wore her back her friend told me that you gonna let her go i go i don't want to he goes she says then fight for her for god's sakes fight for your wife so anyway i tried to date her again instead of being the prick that i was tried to be a nice guy so I, we went to this restaurant in vegas that i couldn't afford it's like a 200 dollars dinner and we had this picture taken. And I look at that even now today, 20 some years later, and I go, what we were going through and what it means to me is that I fought for something that, of value. Mm. But she went off to Jersey to do a dog show. And I had, that's when the, you called from the hotel. Mm -hmm. I had $1 charges, 102 of them. Wow. In five days, all hangups. I would call the front desk. They'd ring the room. One ring, I'd hang up because I didn't want him to pick up the phone. Mm. And um, so it wasn't easy. Yeah. It wasn't easy. And uh, eventually, I told Tammy, uh, I, had, I had given my life to Christ in the midst of that. That was like in August. So she came back from Ohio with the kids in uh, August. Humbling experience for you. Yes, it was. It was. And I told her, if again, I said, I'm going to reiterate, if that's what you want, I'm, I'm, I'm out. But I'm trying, sweetheart. I'm trying. But if you ever want me to in, intervene with this, let me know. She said, okay, I will. And a month later, she came to me. She said, he won't leave me alone. I've told him for a month not to stop. And uh, I was a different man. Mm -hmm. It was something different. Anyway, I called him up and politely told him. <laughs> Maybe said, I'm going to fly to California and I'm going to drag you on your front lawn and beat you senseless in front of your neighbors <laughs> in a Christian loving way. Something in a Christian gentle loving. and loving. <laughs> I said, I think your next six months of meals will be through a straw. <laughs> you know? so, anyway, he uh, and he actually had a nerve to say to me, he goes, well, you better treat her right. You know, I, he was married. I mean, you know, oh, he, yeah. and that's what I tried to explain to Tam. I mean, you, you know, you know, that, um, these guys to pray on. And that's what I, you know, Tammy said to me. And when she shared this publicly, she said, I just wanted, and, and men need to hear this. Anybody listening to this that's a man and married needs to hear this. I just wanted someone to listen to me. 
I wanted someone to talk to me. And she said, Jeff, you never listened to me and you never talked to me. You talked at me. And I said, every now and then, grabbed her hand in a mall, you know, and uh, Amen. I mean, if I was all over her, hanging on her, she'd think there was something wrong with me. But the occasional tender moments and things, and I'm very aware of that today. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm one of those guys who just put my head down and do what's in front of me and not pay attention. And I've asked her a thousand times in our marriage, please tell me, you know, I do a joke about Dateline. You know, I don't know if you watch Dateline, but it's all on spouses killing each other. And I always tell the men, I go, men in the audience, watch five Dateline's with your wife. You look her right in the eye. We doing all right, you and me? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because yeah, nobody ever sees it coming, you know? So so anyway, that, uh, but anyway, I met this guy, the businessman, mm-hmm. and we're in the middle of all of this. And uh, I told him we're probably going to get a divorce and, you know, um, it's just not working out. So uh, he started quoting the Bible on the golf course. And again, I'm a reader. And I'd hear the quote, and I'd go, that's great. Where is he? And he goes, it's in the Bible. Go, after about three Bible quotes, I go, stop it with the Bible. He goes, what do you mean? I go, well, who actually reads the Bible? Come on. <laughs> you know, and he says, well, I do, actually. And I go, you know, and again, you give him that look, and we've all seen it. You know, really? It's a little archaic. You know, God, God's <laughs> word, come on, divinely spoke. Yeah, really? You know, so he says to me, what's in the Bible you don't think is true? I go, I don't know. I never read the Bible. He goes, then you're not an atheist, really. You're a moron. Are you kidding me? <laughs> You've never read the Bible. And I go, what are you talking about? Why would I read the Bible? He says, it's the most in- influential book in the history of the world. And there is a great book out there, by the way, called The Book That Changed Your World or Changed the World, written by an Indian Christian. And uh, when the, the Brits who co- tried to colonize India, uh, when they were booted out, they left behind the Bible. So the areas of India that embrace the Bible are flourishing. They're absolutely flourishing. And where the other ones held on to the caste system and in the, in the, um, the, 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 um, the, the, the Hindu system. The caste system, which is one of the most brutal systems. You know, when I, I always bump into people and go, that's karma. I go, do you have any idea what karma is? It's the most brutal concept ever created by man, yeah. you know, to keep people down. I could help you and lift you out of your poverty, but I'm going to ruin your karma. Yeah, <laughs> You're in poverty and you're living in your own you know, waste. Because you deserve it. Because you deserve it from other lives since, right. past sins. And I said, that's just where the Christian says, oh, no, no, no. You see someone laying in the in their own filth, you pick them up, you clean them off, and you, and, and my name, in my name. Amen. You know, so, anyway, uh, we, we developed a friendship uh, around golf, which is why I have such an affinity towards golf ministries, but um, we would talk on the phone, and uh, like, what we, you know, what men talk about, you know, whether it was politics or philosophy, or you know, whatever, and eventually it came around to how you and Tammy doing. And but, did his, time, but did his advice Maybe you ought to read the Bible. Well, he signed me up for Bible tapes and uh, from Denton Bible. A great teacher, Bobby, Tommy Nelson, Tommy mm. Nelson. And um, I think four days after I, I got home, uh, the first tape arrived. So he immediately, it was like on his list. And a Bible came. Uh, he put the NIV Bible, which I threw in a junk drawer. And the tapes, I never opened one up. And, um, you know, he never really bothered to ask, you know, are you listening to the tapes? And, so uh, after about a year and a half of all of this, the affairs and all that stuff, Tammy just grabbed the kids one day and said, I got to get out of here. Going to Ohio for a few months and you need to sort out your life. I was giving up comedy. Again, I don't know if anybody you know, listening knows what it's like to not know why you're here, what the point of your life is or the purpose, but it's a, um, 
it's a it's a meaningful question in my 30s and um based on my upbringing we were not deep thinkers mm -hmm. we were blue collar um not that there are blue collar people who don't think deeply but we were more reactionary than um thinkers you know and we're not idiots we just weren't thinkers so when all of a sudden you get in your life as a 30 something and the questions come you ask i i began to ask myself where are these questions coming from again i just wanted to have a few beers raise my family and tell a few jokes i mean that was my plan um and now all of a sudden i'm going why does it matter what's the point to life what's you know mm. and when i got to a point where you know i try to latch onto something outside of myself for meaning the logical answer is what if it goes away because it can so where does that leave you whether it's wife and kids, whether it's job, whether it's, you know, because if you check off the boxes by my late thirties, I at least could say I had, I had the boxes checked. I had, I had a home, I had a you know, roof over my head, I had clothing and, you know, um, I had a job that I, I could do fairly well and, and uh, I was making a living. Um, and um, I had a beautiful wife. Uh, we had healthy family at that time, you know, and uh, why was I so miserable? I don't know if I told you the gerbil thing, but uh, that was the no. Tell me the stick. I was obsessed with the gerbil um, in the kids' room, and uh, Tammy comes by one day. She goes, "What's with you?" And because I would watch it like television, I would just sit there for on the wheel half hour. Well, occasionally, you know, but but what it would do, it would get sticks on one side, run them over to the other side, stack them up, and then when they were done, he maybe spin the wheel for a while, and then take the sticks and move them back over there. And Tammy goes, so what? I go, that's our life. She goes, what do you mean? I go, look, I go out, I make a few bucks, we buy a few things, they wear out, we take them to the landfill. You know, and I said, if I'm lucky, I get a movie deal, a sitcom deal, I make a lot of money. But it, all the stuff that we eventually, the sticks we bring home wind up in the landfill. Mm. And we get bigger and bigger buildings to house our sticks in. And then we go to Disney World with the kids, or you and I go to Vegas, and that's our wheel. That's we spin a couple weeks out of the year. You know, and I looked at her and said, if that's my life for the next 20 years, I'm checking out. Doesn't seem like I'm much going. of a purpose. No. And she said, you know, you checked out years ago. I mean, she was, she, she couldn't get her head around the stuff I was thinking about. Sure. She was, I'm trying to raise a family alone. You know, that was her thing. She goes, we need money. We're losing the house. And I, I get the impression you don't care. I go, I don't care. But do you think I wake up in the morning and look at all of this responsibility and think, I, I, I just, I shouldn't care. I want to care. I just don't because I don't know why it even matters. So how did that change? The Bible. Ecclesiastes. First book. Meaningless, meaningless. All in life is meaningless. And I just went, wow. That, I mean, it was like, bam. That was, that phrase, meaningless, meaningless. All in life is meaningless summed up my eight years hmm. that was it and the, in the in the sermon the, the 45 minutes the uh, first couple of chapters of ecclesiastes was about life without god will have no meaning without meaning to your life there's no purpose to your life so you might as well commit suicide and it was like holy cow right you know so i wanted to get more of that so i ripped open all these manila envelopes tammy was in ohio Matter of fact, this is actually funny. We had our furniture hauled away because we couldn't pay for it. So um, all that God left me in my living room was a boombox <laughs> that I could put a tape in. 
that was our entertainment center. It was a boombox there, oh, a 39.95 boombox. Yeah. And uh, here I am sitting in Arizona listening. And uh, uh, the next tape I remember hearing, uh, and again, uh, you know, you paraphrase, but it was, uh, if happiness was an act of human will, we'd all be happy. Because you ask anybody what they want out of life, they want to be happy. What do you want for your kids? I want them to be, I just want them to be happy. I just want to, well, how do you define that? And then you get into the materialism versus you know, God. I mean, if if right. if it's the next car, the next relationship, the next house, the next job, the next whatever. If I if only because that's what I used to tell myself. If only, if only, if only. And I remember Seinfeld. I, I I did a show with Jerry Seinfeld. Never seen him since. Again, these are seeds that get planted. I believe this. I believe this with all of my heart and soul. God puts this guy in my life, and I, we're waiting for our checks. And I was like gum on his shoe. I, he couldn't get away from me. I'm just complaining about everything. If I can get a, you know, if I can get on Letterman, if I can get on this, if I can get that, and finally, after about forty minutes of listening to me, he goes, "Can I say something?" And I go, "Please." He said, "And all your complaints," and he goes, "A lot of them." <laughs> he said, "You never complained about how hard you work on your craft. You know, you get good at what you do in this business, entertainment." He said, "Word gets out." He goes, "I've never had to look for work, and you know, I just, came to, you know." And of course, I look at him. I go, "Are you on a twelve-step program?" He goes, "No, that's common sense." <laughs> Take care of what you can control. Right. So I just got into the Bible and specifically Ecclesiastes. Mm. Um, and then when I got to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, this was two or three weeks of, of obsessively listening. I mean, four, five, six, seven hours of Bible tapes a day. And even now, I 20-some years, I wish I could get into that. I really do. It was a wonderful time in my life. I was learning and I was and I was being pulled by the God of the universe. The scales were coming off. And I was, I was, you talk about a joy-filled life. I was experiencing joy, and it was a strange feeling for me. It really was. I mean, I was, I used to, I do the joke where I was doing Bible studies in my car, staring with my leg, making notes, and I almost met Jesus before I met Jesus. People were <laughs> waving at me one finger at a time, and I'm just <laughs> waving back. You know? And it's just, but it was, it was an amazing uh, uh Spirit-filled time. And um, the Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God, that's what broke me. Mm -hmm. I, I knew, I knew, as sure as I'm talking to you, that this God I was reading about in this book was real. Was real. And I, you know, and I called my friend Philip, scared to death. I'm screaming, there's a God, Phil, there's a God. He goes, well, I've been trying to tell you for a year, year and a half. But, mm -hmm. And I said, no, you don't understand. He goes, what was your problem? I go, how about blasphemy? Yeah, about cursing him, how about denying him? And I sat there and sobbed on the phone. Why would he want me? And he says, uh, have you gotten the, the cross yet? And I said, no. no. He goes, oh, can't ruin the ending for you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? He goes, study the cross. Study the cross, man. And we'll talk. And it was probably a month later, I was in Dallas where he lives. And I went to church and met Tommy. Uh, you know, briefly, I, uh, I tried, I was gum on his shoe, just going, oh my God, I was like a fanboy. <laughs> Listen to you first, you know, and uh, we got back to his house and he just simply asked me, he goes, can you admit you're a sinner? And I go, well, let's not go overboard. You know? <laughs> you know? But when God breaks a man, when God breaks a man, he never leaves him broken, ever. Amen. When the world breaks a man, they just throw him in a trash heap and move on to the next one. And uh, God broke me. But uh, he had to break me of the earth, the, all these external things, and just said, uh, get on your knees. And, um, you know, uh, so 
anyway, that's uh, and it's, you know, again, you know, you know, it's not perfect. I mean, my, you know, and again, I think you get this this marriage with Christ for me anyway. You get so far down that path, then all of a sudden life starts happening again, and you start finding old habits coming back, and blah blah blah. And you start thinking, well, maybe I'll abandon this whole thing because it's hard. Because that's what you know, Chesterton said that. You know, it's not that Christianity was tried and found wanting. It was tried, found too difficult, and abandoned. That's right. That <laughs> is know? correct. So, so anyway, I get, you get far down the road and you go, I, I, now I'm committing some sins. I'm, I'm cussing, throwing clubs at the golf course again. You know, and I'm, these old habits are coming back. And, you know, and I remember sitting on the end of my bed one night and the voice going, you're a hypocrite. You're just a hypocrite. What would your Christian brethren think of you now? You know, hypocrite, loser, hypocrite, loser, you know. And I'm, and I'm like, where, where is this coming from? I mean, my, my gosh, are you kidding me? So, but anyway, Christ gives you enough of a, of, a, of a wedding ceremony to where all of a sudden you look back and you go, I'm not going back there. There's no way. I'm going to plot through this and I'm going to do what is asked of me. I'm going to get on my knees. And, well, when Lewis was asked uh, the difference between Christianity and every other faith in the world, he very quickly responded, that's easy, grace. So right. the misunderstanding particularly um, of those who are skeptical or, or hostile to Christianity, which is, well, if you're a Christian, how can you act in a way that is inconsistent with your faith? Yeah. The answer to that is that because we're human and we're broken and we're not perfect, right? right. But we do know that if we endeavor to work in a way that reflects and honors him, that when we fall short, and we recognize and, and admit that his grace is uh, exceedingly available in, right. in any circumstance and loves us, you know, unconditionally. That's a, that's a big thing. And when you realize that, it's easier to extend grace to others, right. which is what I see lacking in the culture today. I, I, you know, there was a foundation that we grew up in that even— you know, atheists were raised by parents or grandparents that had a basic understanding of grace and forgiveness in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And that's gone. Mm -hmm. And um, I just don't see a lot of grace and forgiveness out there. I really don't. And, um, well, that kind of brings us to a, a, an interesting question as we start coming to a close here. The, for folks that are listening and have been through tough stuff themselves, could be um, going through tough things themselves right now. Uh, through your journey, in the last part of Survival Life Thrive, we talk about joy and what joy yeah. really means. And in our earlier discussion about happiness, which is such an American concept, isn't it? I mean, it's like, are you happy? It's a right. very temporal. Well, it's so funny. The, the, yeah, the new age tells you, and I'm trying to, believe me, I've tried it. I tried it all. Stand in front of the mirror and affirm yourself. <laughs> and... Oh, boy. I couldn't even look myself in the eye. I knew it was a crock. I knew it was. I just, who are you kidding? I mean, are you kidding me? So in our, in our journey in, in, right. in, in America, happiness is, is temporal, right? It's connected to how much money you've got. Is your job going well? Right. There's the old saying, well, it's you're only as happy as your it's called conditional, unhappy kid. It's conditional happiness. So what's joy? Joy is, I think, an unconscious state of being. And where do you get it? Well, I believe it comes from outside. 
I believe something comes from outside of us and works its way through us in the form of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. That's my belief. Mm -hmm. And um, it does not mean that I'm ignorant to situations around me that warrant sadness, that warrant grief, that warrant, you know, those are things that need to be worked through. Uh, I, I don't know if it was Lewis that said this. To the pagan, joy is peripheral. Suffering is central. Mm. To the Christian, joy is central. Suffering peripheral. So if our core is the state of being where I know everything's going to be okay, there's a plan in place, then it makes navigating through the fallen world a little easier. And, you know, I've had, we've all had, at our age, we've all had friends that have passed away. My mother, uh, this is a perfect example. The two, the two, my father was an atheist to the day he died. He was not a happy man. And you know my story, losing right. Victoria. Right. And um, my mother, I remember she was in hospice, and her sisters were there, my aunts. And I said, is mom okay with the Lord? And she goes, oh. She got saved at a Billy Graham crusade. Your mother's been prayerful, prayerful. And, and all of a sudden, we never talked about it at home because my father was so visceral in his dislike for Christians and Christianity and God and anything that my mother never spoke about it, mm. which explained a lot because she was very, we used to call her St. Darlene with all these lunatic men around her. <laughs> you know, she, was, she was the one calming force in all of that. But um, imagine that. All my mother said to me three days before she died is that it came so quick, Jeff. There's so many things I want to say. I'm blessed for having that, that time. Amen. Well, you know, God's love is manifest so clearly in your life. And I, I love your definition of joy. There is a. Um, a well-known scripture, Philippians, as, as Paul writes in um, chapter 4, that when you share the needs of your heart with him, that the peace of God will be with you that surpasses all understanding. Right. And, it, and it's so hard to explain. But at the same time, I love the exercise of, of trying to articulate what that means. And it, it seems like the joy that you're explaining that you've experienced is it, you it's a gift that's been provided to you unconditionally from a, a, a loving God. Well, there's no ABCD plan. There's right. no an acronym you could put in a sermon that, and at the end of it, well, you'll have joy. I just submit to that. Right on. So let me, let me ask for the folks that are listening that are, uh, have gone through tough stuff or are currently going through it. Um, what sort of advice do you have for people, words of wisdom, if you will, about their journey? I hate to say this, but it'll pass. It'll pass. But you've got to work through. You can't skip the steps. You've got to work through it and um, surround yourself with people. Do, the worst thing you can do is isolate. Research I quote in, in the book about the act of sharing being right. healing, not only for those that are listening, but the act of sharing for the the sharer. You, you've right. been so generous in sharing your story here today. Um, 
uh, it, do you encourage other folks to open Absolutely. Well, in, in my case, I'm an alcoholic drug addict and I have secrets, shameful secrets that you don't want, but you're as sick as your secrets. Somebody who loses somebody, it, it, that's not the issue. I don't think you're carrying around some deep, dark secrets. Right. You know, again, I don't know what the inner dialogue is, but I know what my inner dialogue is. It's usually not healthy. So in order to get it out, you know, I remember when I shared the first time about spanking Ryan in the crib at six months, I was humiliated. Mm. It was at a men's meeting or something and almost to a man. Wow. I was, I was never going to talk about this, but so a lot of men were able to get out a secret and a shameful thing. And each one you get out just heals you that much more and, and allows the joy in. You know, I, I, I'm always hesitant to give advice because it, it it's, it's almost sounds like one size fits all. I just like to share what I did, what I do. And um, I know enough now where if I sit in my own pain, uh, you know, someone once said pain is the only motivator for change in our lives. God gave us pain for that so that we would get up and change. Mm -hmm. We'd make changes. Without pain, why would you? Right. So the question is, what is your threshold of pain? You know, when I first got into the 12-step program, I had a high threshold of pain, <laughs> yeah. very high. But yeah. now, not so much. I get a little uncomfortable, and I'll get in, in my prayer life is basically what's going on. Well, you know, in, in the book, I, I love what you're saying, um, particularly uh, one of the hallmarks of what Survival Life Thrive is about is making sure folks, no matter what stage you're in in your journey, realize and understand they're not alone. Right. Absolutely. I mean, that's so many, the, the isolating important. thing, right? Right. Well, that's what kills me about, you know, we're in the middle of this COVID thing. And, you know, you, the most heinous punishment a prison can do is isolate a prisoner. Mm. And we're doing it willingly in the, in the culture. Don't get me started. Yeah, no, you know, no, no, but no, it's, but it is, no. it's, it's, um, it is. And, and as far as recovering from grief, loss, or an addiction, you cannot isolate. You just can't. It's just, you're not equipped. No, no human being is equipped to do life alone. Nobody. Amen to that. And, uh, and I'll remind listeners that at survivealivethrive.org, that's survive-alive-thrive.org, our website offers online virtual community gatherings for folks to get together and experience support exchanges to realize they're not alone and have That's community great. even if they can't get out. Right. And boy, I, I, I love your thought that, you know, isolation is is, uh, is is so tough. I mean, we are not alone. Our journeys are unique, right. but we have so much in common as, as we struggle and we have a solution. And that is surrender and acknowledgement right. that we need God's grace to Right. Move through this. Well, the situations process. are different, but the feelings inside are the same. I mean, whether, you know, I mean, grief, loss is, it's how you react to it. Everybody is unique, but the, and the situations of what you've lost, it might be different, but the feelings themselves, and that's so important to be able to express that in, a, in, a, in an environment. And if you're around somebody who judges it, find another. 
you know, there are some people, you know, that there, there are suck it up, buttercup. That's you know, <laughs> the problem is there yeah. are people. Uh, yeah, I went to a therapist <laughs> once that uh, I, I realized at some point had not dealt with their own issues and stuff that I was bringing up. <laughs> so we'd get to parts where they got uncomfortable and they would blow it off. We don't need to talk about that. You know? And I was going, what is going on? So anyway, I had to go find somebody that had done the work and was able to walk me through it. Well, your last, the last word from you, and then I'll close us out. What's the last thing you want to leave our listeners with? Ah, just laugh. Find, find your sense of humor again. You know, somebody said uh, comedy was tragedy plus time. <laughs> if you have time to heal from a wound, you should find humor in it. You know? And um, that's, uh, I think, more than ever now. You know, and the endorphins, and there's just so many healing benefits to laughter. So, and again, maybe I'm selfish, but that's what I do for a living. But <laughs> go to a comedy club, laugh, you know. And they can hear some of you where? JeffAllenComedy.com. Uh, you can go to my uh, Facebook page, Jeff Allen Comedian. Yeah, we, we post videos uh, almost daily, something funny video. But uh, yeah, Jeff Allen Comedy, that has everything on it. And, um, uh, they can follow you on Instagram. YouTube. YouTube, sign up for my YouTube channel, you know, and then, then you're, you get notifications. Jeff, you've been a great blessing. Thank you for uh, joining me here today. Thanks for having me. It's the longest I've ever been allowed to stay at somebody's house. <laughs> you know, and, and like all good things, it's coming to an end. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to thank everybody for listening and in particular for, for Jeff sharing his story so transparently and honestly. And, um, um, for those out there, remember, you are not alone. Thank you for listening to Survive Alive Thrive, our podcast on a, living a joy-filled life. God bless you, and we'll talk soon. I'm Dr. Melin Galbraith. Thank you for joining us on the journey to hope, happiness, and joy. It's our privilege to spend time with you. And I'm Mark Negley. Remember that no matter what your situation you are not alone and you can experience a joy-filled life. We'll see you next time.